Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you um, for the gift of your word. And we ask that you would watch over us now. I pray that you would grant me the grace, Lord, as uh, your appointed pastor of this church. You give me the grace I need to preach your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your blood-purchased people. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I will take a slight detour from the preaching series of, on the Catechism. I might tie in a few points with it. But it is Mother's Day. It's a secular holiday. It's, it's, it's a created holiday. But it is important. When we think about it, a mother really is the first, in, in most, instance, most instances, the first teacher of a child the first teacher of a child. Traditionally, up until very, um, just a few generations ago, maybe one generation, uh, the father would just, he, he would go, he'd go off to work, and the mother would, would stay home and begin the lesson with the child. And imagine if you're in 15th century England and the father is a sailor. He's a commercial, commercial, what we would call a merchant marine. He'd be gone for years baby might be born and he might have to get on a ship to earn his daily bread and he'd be gone. Who, who would teach the child then? The mother. There were some professions in olden times that made it easier for a father to teach his children. For instance, if they were uh, farmers or ranchers, the sons, could come, the sons and daughters could come out and work with the father because he worked right there near the house. But if he had to go to a factory for 15 or 20 hours or a mine for 15 or 20 hours, it was left up to the mother. Those first lessons that are taught, generally speaking, are taught by the mother. And my experience has been is that the lessons that are learned youngest generally speaking, are the ones that stay with us the longest, if they're good lessons. And sadly to say, if they're bad lessons, that can happen as well. For instance, just my relationship with my mother. I recall when I was maybe 11, certainly not one of the first lessons she taught me, but an important lesson, because it was immediately after my parents' divorce. And we were watching a show. And I can't recollect what the show was. It certainly couldn't have been anything profound. And I remember there were rich people in the show, really, really rich people. And I said, well, that looks like that, looks like that would be a real fun way to live. I said, those, those kids there, they have, a, they have a free ride. I remember saying, they have a free ride, and that's, that's the way to go. She turned off the TV. I remember in those days she had to get up and shut the TV off, there's no remote, shut it off, and say, those who want a free ride are weak, and they don't have any pride. They don't take, they don't take satisfaction in working. And I said, okay. And that lesson really stuck with me for a long time. And it wasn't because the television show was any great shakes, because I can't remember even what it was, but I do remember her getting up from the couch, shutting off, and giving me that short, brief lecture. And that has stuck with me for, well, that's 40 years ago at least. A mother can have great influence on the way a Christian child grows. 
great influence. And what I'd like to do is kind of, time permitting, take a little quick trip through the book of Genesis and look at a few mothers that are actually in the book of Genesis and look at some of their, quickly, look at some of their strengths and some of their weaknesses. Because we all have strengths and weaknesses. That's why God calls us together as a body. There are certain religions where they're very individualistic, where your path is yours and yours alone, and the goal is to really become a self-enclosed entity. But in the Christian church, Paul uses the analogy of a body, the body of Christ. So that the reason why is that what might be five persons' strength would be a corresponding five or six persons' weaknesses, but the roles would be reversed so that we all can work together. In other words, you have an arm. An arm is a very useful thing to have. It is not a foot. You can walk on your hands. You've seen people walk on their hands, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a novel feat. I remember Walter Payton, who's one of the great uh, professional football players. He could walk on his hands for something like 50 or 75 yards. Now, that, that, is a, that is an amazing physical feat. That's a long way to walk on your hands. But generally speaking, it's more efficient to just use the feet that God has given you. Think of Eve, the first mother. Do you know what the word Eve actually means? Mother of all the living. She's the first mother. Mothers can also have their hearts broken very easily as well. I think in some respects, some respects, more so than the father sometimes. She had two sons, at least two sons, Cain and Abel. We know the story, don't we? No need to rehash the story. They both bring sacrifices to the Lord, prefiguring the Christ who is memorialized in this table. One brings a vegetable, what we call a vegetable sacrifice. Very good, very important. No blood involved. The other, Abel, brings an animal sacrifice, which of necessity involves blood. One is accepted, one is not. And the Lord reprimands Cain for only bringing vegetables, grain type of harvests. He would have been instructed. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we know that he had to have been instructed in the proper way to approach God. His parents would have taught him that. And we know the end of that story. Cain is so filled with rage, so filled with non-covenantal anger and hate, that he cannot repent of his sin, will not repent of his sin, will not make up with his brother, who, from what we can tell, had done nothing wrong to him. And he rises up and kills his brother. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about Eve's reaction to that, but can you imagine? Can you imagine? That is the first slaying in all of human history. What would have went through her mind? Now, the Lord gives her another child named Seth. Okay? Named Seth. You know, as far as we know, the first Seth in history. And it's through his line, ironically, that... The covenantal line will go. And she says, the Lord has given me, I'm paraphrasing here, given me a man-child to replace the one that Cain took. Sometimes mothers 
learn lessons from their children. Fathers do as well, but it's Mother's Day. And certainly the lesson that Eve would have learned from Cain was that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That what her husband Adam had done really had really had set in motion the judgment of God. So that men, even at that early stage of human development, could be filled with such rage that they would do something like that. We'll run into another mother sometime after. The flood. Noah's wife. Nobody knows her name. Well, Noah knew, but we don't know her name. Noah's wife. Imagine what she went through as a mother. Her husband's given a great commission. The only one who's told to build this ark, which ironically is again prefiguring the Christ. It's a vessel that saved people from judgment. All of it prefigures Christ. She has three sons. Three sons. One of them turned out to be a louse. A real louse. Now, I'd like you to think about Ham. That's her son. His name's Ham. Think about what he saw as a grown man at this point. His family alone is chosen to be saved. His father builds this amazing, amazing thing. And certainly he must have been ridiculed by his neighbors. A flood's going to come, right? You think that dinghy's... And you, God's told you personally to bring... Sets of animals into there? You're, you're what? You're the savior of the world? Well, no, actually, I'm just the savior of the animals in my family. But Ham sees that. He sees the flood. He and his wife and his two brothers and their wives and his mother and father. The Bible doesn't mention if they had children or not. We don't know at that point. He sees the judgment of God come down. All that rain. A great feat, right? And he's, he and his family are saved. They are delivered. Now, from my perspective and from our perspective, that's a very dramatic thing that should really make a big impression on a person. Maybe we can excuse ourselves if we don't learn a subtle lesson, but how could you possibly miss that one? No need for flannel grass here, son, because it's right here in Panacolla. What happens after the flood subsides? Life begins anew. Noah shows that he's a sinner. He plants a vineyard, harvests some of it, and then gets drunk. Ham thinks that that's a funny thing. He thinks it's funny. And in some way that we don't know exactly, he disgraces his father. We don't know exactly what occurred, but he disgraced his father. And the two other sons walk backward into Noah's tent as a matter of respect and cover him up, you know, physically cover him up with blankets. And Ham is then cursed. And his line has a tragic, tragic history to it. Somewhere along the line, Ham didn't learn the lessons that he should have learned. And certainly his mom taught him some lessons. What must have gone through her mind to hear her husband? curse her son. And actually, it's worse than that. 
He cursed the son's line. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses Canaan, who would be Ham's descendants. What would have gone through her mind as a mother to hear that? I mean, that's harsh. Certainly mothers hear fathers correct children, and it's very indicative that in the epistles to the Ephesians and Colossians, that Paul warns fathers not to exasperate their children. He doesn't give a corresponding lesson to the mother. He singles out fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not become angry. Certainly the same command would go for mother. It's not as if a mother is allowed to exasperate her children. But clearly, if Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives that particular command to daddy, then that must mean that daddies, as a class of, as a class of persons, might have an inclination to exasperate their children by enforcing rules, maybe enforcing them in a harsh way. Before my parents were divorced, my mother would sometimes tell me, wait till your father gets home. That was, that was code. You know? I'm going to call him. Wait till he gets home. Punishment is on its way. He will come and lay down the law. What about Sarah, Abraham's wife? She's an interesting mother. She's given a promise. She and Abraham are given the promise the promise. Verbally, they hear God's voice. She heard it. They're very old. God gives Abraham the promises. And the promises, of course, have to come through Sarah because, because it involves a child. It involves a child. Mom has to be involved. But God delays the promise. God often does that. He delays the promise to prove how powerful and miraculous he is. And to test our faith. To test our faith. Your faith is tested every day. God has made a promise that Christ will return. We've been waiting for more than 2,000 years. A lot of people think we're fools for that. They think we're fools for that. But we hold on to that hope. We know it as a certainty. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If you see it, you don't have to believe it. Because you have physical evidence right there in front of you. Sarah's given this promise that Isaac will be born. That the child of promise will come. And you have to remember that that promise that was given to Eve in Genesis 3.15, that that tale would have been told over and over. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have printing presses. Knowledge was passed down verbally. The tale of the coming one, the tale of the coming Messiah, the one who would be the, was called the seed of the woman in the garden, who would stomp on the serpent's head, who would make war with the serpent's seed, that tale, that promise would have been passed down generation to generation. Mothers would have told their children that from the cradle. Life is hard now, but there's someone coming who will deliver us. And each generation most likely was on the lookout for that person. She is given the promise. Well, Abraham's given, they're given the promise that this kid is going to be born of you too. 
the two of you, nobody else. But the promise goes on and time goes on. They get into their 90s and it hasn't been fulfilled. What does she do as a mother? Well, a mother-to-be. She makes the fatal mistake of deciding for a brief moment of weakness to not believe God's promise. And she takes her slave named Hagar. We know the story, right? Gives her to Abraham and says, bring me a surrogate child. Hagar is to be a surrogate. It's a legal relationship. You know the name of their baby, right? Hagar and Abraham. Ishmael. Ishmael. Very few children have come into the world and have left such a disastrous legacy. He is the father of the Arabian race. Something wrong with Arabian people. But their history has been one of prophetic fulfillment. Abraham cries out to God, are you going to bless Ishmael? He loved him. It was his son. He says, I'll bless him for you, but the promise is coming through Isaac, this guy that's still on the, it's not here yet. He said, Ishmael, God says, Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man, kicking against his neighbors. And that has been the history of that Arabian Peninsula for a long, long time. And if you haven't read the papers lately, it's still, still going on. If Sarah, if Sarah had, and it's easy for us to look back in hindsight, if Sarah had been stronger, and certainly if Abraham, Abraham's really guilty in this one too, he, he it was his responsibility to tell Sarah, he's given us a promise, no, no, not going to happen. But Isaac comes into the world. Ishmael is there as well. If Sarah had just waited on God's promise, which is hard for us to do. And again, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Well, we don't know until we're actually on the playing field. But think of that faithful mistake. Because once Ishmael is born, Sarah's not happy. Not happy. Not happy. And says, kick them out. You know, on second thought, I don't, I don't want them. Kick them out. I don't want a stepson. Get rid of them. Isaac comes around. It's very different than Ishmael. He's what we might call a softy. He marries a woman named Rebecca. So Rebecca becomes a mom. Rebecca's an interesting type of mother. She plays favorites, which isn't a good thing to do. She has twins. You know her twins' names? Jacob and Esau. Oh, Jacob and Esau. This is Rebecca is the mother of these two boys. So different in personality and temperament that you would never imagine they were twins, much less brothers. Esau is a man of the fields. He goes out hunting and, and makes stews and soups and, and casseroles for his dad. He's a, he's a man's man. Dad likes him. Jacob is 
a little bit more like his dad. He stays behind with mom. Okay? But Rebecca loves Jacob more. And it's ironic that the promise is going to come through a guy named Jacob. Do you know what Jacob's name means? Deceiver. It's an okay name. I've, I've known many people who are named Jacob. It's a perfectly fine name, but it's, that's what it means. We don't think about that anymore. We just, you know, names don't really have much meaning in our culture too much. It's more of an ancient thing. But you know the story. It's time to get the blessing. It's time to get the blessing. And technically speaking, Esau was the older one. And in those days, you didn't split the blessing. You got the whole kit and caboodle. So Rebecca gets this brilliant idea. Hey, listen, this is what we're going to do. You're going to... We're going to dress you up. You know, your, your brother's hairy. Now, Esau was a silly guy, too. He had sold his birthright to Esau, to Jacob, for a bowl of porridge, but he really didn't have the authority to do that. And what they have to do now is they have to deceive Jacob. So this is what Rebecca, the mom, does. She gets Jacob to dress up in these skins to imitate Esau because Isaac was going blind. And she makes the favorite dish and he brings it in. And Jacob lies to his father. His father's near death. It's the time to pass off the legacy. You do that towards the end, generally speaking. Jacob steals the blessing from Esau with his mother's complicity. What was she thinking? That's a lesson of a mother actually telling her son to deceive the father. I think most of us would agree that nah, that's, that's probably not going to be found in a mothering book. You know, 100, 101 ways to you know, deceive your father and, and steal the inheritance. It's generally, that's the stuff of soap operas. That's the stuff of soap operas and, and high society. And that's the type of mother she was. She played favorites. Isaac's to blame. Esau's to blame. Jacob's to blame. But she had her own role. And she was a godly woman. She was a godly woman. Abraham sent far and wide to find her. Isaac couldn't even find himself a wife. Abraham had to find him for it. Abraham sent his servant, Eliezer, to go, go find my son a wife from my people that are far away. Because Abraham had been sent away from his people. Abraham was smart enough to realize, I don't want Isaac marrying these foreigners because they don't worship the same God. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Remember the story of Lot? A sordid testimony that is. He had a wife. She's known by the name Lot's wife. She's a mother, too. She had two daughters. As they're leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, she looks back to the city, which she's commanded not to do, and the Lord turns her to a pillar of salt. Most of us remember that story, but we don't remember the legacy of her as a mother. She had these two daughters who at best were immoral and at worst 
Well, that's the only way you can describe them. They get, I don't even know how to say this, they get Lot drunk and they have illicit relations with him so that they can continue their family line. Obviously, mom didn't teach them very good lessons back in Sodom and Gomorrah and they obviously grew up in a very rough neighborhood. They each have a child. Do you know the people that came from that? The Moabites and the Ammonites. So now, those commands of the Lord to go into the promised land and wipe everything out, it makes a little bit more sense now. Because the Lord says, the sins of the Moabites and the Ammonites have come to their full fruition. That's who was inheriting the promised land before the Israelites went in. What kind of mothers were they? We have no idea, but we can look ahead and then infer back from what their children wound up doing. The Moabites and Ammonites were evil people. Evil people. So evil, so evil, that the Lord had literally commanded the Israelites to have zero mercy on them. Zero. And the commands that the Lord gave to the Israelites horrify us if we have any, any, any heart at all. But those were the people that came from that union. What did she teach those kids? Again, we don't have any Bible verses that say, you know, she taught Moab that and she taught Ammon that, but we can figure it out from the family tree. What happened in the future? And time will prevent me from going forward to Jacob and his four wives and the strange lessons that those children must have learned. But what's ironic about it all is that even through these mothers' simultaneous faithfulness and simultaneous sin, that the promise of God comes all the way through and that it cannot happen without a mother. It's an impossibility. Please think of the incarnation of our Lord. It was possible for Joseph to be taken out of the equation. It was impossible for Mary to be taken out of the equation. How do we know that? Because that's the way it happened. We can look at what God does and then look back and say, well, it must be impossible because God did it this way. The condemnation of original sin comes through the father, not through the mother. The mother's line is exempt from that. That is why Joseph was taken out of the equation. Mary was certainly highly favored. That's what the angel said. But it wasn't as if she was sinless. She acknowledges herself that she's a sinner. What must it have been like to be Jesus' mother? Frankly, probably an easy job. Never disobeys, never violates any of the commandments. The per- literally, the perfect poster boy of the perfect son. None of us are him. Our mothers, men or women, our mothers didn't inherit the Jesus in their flock. We break our mothers' hearts. We offer them offense at one time or another. And what do we do when that happens? 
We confess to them. We apologize to them. Mother is essential. I know it's just a, a secular holiday that they made up so they could sell greeting cards and, 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 and the restaurants could have a booming business. But it really is essential from a covenantal perspective to realize that without the mother's line, it doesn't happen. Eve is called the mother of all the living. Joseph is taken out of the equation. Mary isn't. Without mom, the covenant doesn't happen. Without mom, this table cannot historically happen. The cross can't happen. And we have ample evidence in the scriptures that as Jesus grew older, his mother had the primary care of him. How do we know that? Because Joseph isn't mentioned anymore. Mary is. Mary's mentioned throughout the passages. When the family thinks that Jesus is nuts, who goes and fetches them? Not dad. He's not even mentioned. His mother and his brothers. She's the one that has to deal with that. She's the one who saw her son nailed to the cross. Joseph's not there. Certainly, if his son's being nailed to the cross, he would have been there. He wasn't. Most historians just deduce, well, he passed away. Mary was there. She fulfilled her part. And it's amazing that God uses imperfect, weak women to bring forth the covenant line. Even using Jacob and his wives to bring forth the 12 tribes of Israel. The fourth one, Judah, is from where our Lord sprung from. Call your mother today. If she's not here, remember her. I often think of my two grandmothers on this day. The lessons they taught me when I was a young boy. Proper manners, how to sit at the table. But try and weave it in with your Christian faith as well. And realize that, humanly speaking, the stakes are very high. Because without the mother, there's no covenantal succession. Without, no co- without any covenantal succession, there is no cross. Without a cross, none of us are saved. None of us are saved. Thank your mother. Remember her. Respect her. Honor her. Let's pray. Lord, you command us, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land the Lord thy Lord giveth thee. We ask us, Father, on this day that we would remove ourselves from the cultural trappings. And realize that our mothers are so much more important than just a, just a card or a box of chocolates. And that it is they who give us life. And that it is they through whom you saw fit to bless your covenant through. Help us this day, O oh Lord. Amen.